Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've seen the original version of The Office, the one from the UK, you probably know Mackenzie Crook. He played Gareth, kind of the office dope. Gareth is awkward. He doesn't really get social cues. He has kind of an overinflated sense of self-worth. He kisses up all the time. But, and I think this is really important, maybe even the most important thing about Gareth, he has a really, really bad haircut, like a bowl cut, kind of. And I mean, this should be obvious, but when he got the role, uh, Mackenzie didn't already have the haircut. He had to go out and ask for the haircut. I was instructed to go and get my haircut, and I went into the to this hairdresser and and I said to the guy that I needed a bad haircut I wanted a a bad office worker's haircut did you go into like a fancy haircut place or like a yeah I did yeah in London Soho and this guy that I asked to do this was a little bit put out because you know he'd he'd been to college to learn how to do good haircut (laughs) it's bullseye This week, Mackenzie Crook talks with me about The Office and about the TV series he created and in which he stars. It's called Detectorists. It's about guys with metal detectors. Detectorists is a charming kind of sparse show. And when it isn't focused on guys with metal detectors, it's got some killer B-roll. And I said to the crew on the first day, if anyone finds an interesting bug or a toad or a butterfly, whatever, bring it to me and we'll try and get these shots. But first... Alia Shocker. She plays Maybe on TV's Arrested Development, which is a role that she's had on and off since she was 14 years old. It worked out so well, it gave her kind of unrealistic expectations. And because I was young and hadn't experienced before, it was, you know, I'd been on another TV show, but this was only my second one. And you get nominated for an Emmy, and you get nominated for all these awards, and I was like, I guess that's what happens on TV <laughs> shows. You just have to go to these awards. Finally, Nobody can really break the laws of physics, except possibly Barry Sanders, one of the greatest NFL running backs of all time. That's coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Alia Shaka just made a really interesting movie. Of course, you probably know her best for her role as maybe Funke on the show Arrested Development. She also stars in Search Party on TBS. She's always funny, confident. She's vulnerable when she has to be. But there's this new movie. It's called Duck Butter. It's available right now to buy or rent. It's basically the story of a romantic relationship on Fast Forward. Not like a romance story that condenses two years into 90 minutes, first kiss and all. It's a deeply committed, engaged, and loving relationship that lasts, in the film's time, 24 hours. Here's the premise. Alia plays Naima, who one night at a club meets Sergio, played by Laia Costa. Right away, they're both smitten. They kiss in the club, they hook up at home, and after that they decide to spend the next 24 hours together awake and totally present to get all the relationship stuff over with, the sex, the fights, the ups and downs. And they learn about each other. Naima is reserved and clever. Sergio is frank and a little dramatic. Together, the two make for a movie that's modest, intimate, and really sweet. I do want to mention that if you're wondering over the course of this interview why we don't talk about the Arrested Development cast group interview that the New York Times did a couple of weeks ago... It's because I conducted this interview before that interview was released. Anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit from Alia's new movie, Duck Butter. This is from the beginning of the film. Naima and Sergio just met. In this moment, the two make a plan to spend the next day together. You know these kind of couples that they spend like 10 years together and then they get married? They divorce in one year. Right. So just get married right away. Yeah, do everything you want the second you want. Yeah. Yeah. And you just get, like, nervous thinking about it before you do it. Exactly. Just go and have fun with the things you have right there. (laughs) Yeah, like this. This whole night, we should do this for, like, 24 hours straight. Like you and me? Yeah. Eating chips, drinking juice. Yeah. Having sex. 
What are you doing? Now? I want to know you. For real. You got four hours out of me so far. I went 24 hours. Alia Shaka, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a bold premise for a film. Mm. I think 24 hours of dating is pretty bold. Folding the sex into it really doubles down on boldness. <laughs> um, between you and uh, Miguel Arteta, who co-wrote the movie with you and directs it, um, where did this idea come up? We have known each other um, for a while now. I want to say like almost 10 years. But um, he approached me and was like, I want to write with you. I want to write something. And I was very flattered. And we kind of just sat down and started talking about um, different ideas. And we soon discovered that we both wanted to make a movie about love um, and why it hurts so much. Um, more really like the idea of love. When you project on someone and even when you know someone's not right for you, you still are like, but then why am, do I miss them so much? Or why do I kind of wish I could make it work even though I know this is like very toxic. So we just started sharing stories of toxic relationships we've been in that we can't really let go of and we still think about. Um, and it kind of started from there. It took five years of lots of conversation because we'd both be working and leave town a lot and then we'd Skype and um, yeah, the script went through many different forms. But yeah, that's kind of how it started. I imagine that neither one of you were in this uh, weird high-concept dating situation, mm -hmm. but were in the situation where you were in relationships and trying to force love into and onto them? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was a combination um, of... You know, Sergio is an amalgamation of people we had been drawn to before, a version of it. Uh, people who are mystifying and have this kind of confidence where they don't question themselves and inspire others at first. And then, like, you know, the more you get to know them, kind of seeing that they're actually very damaged. And not that they're not lovable, but that it might be too much for you to be able to handle. Um, and then also, you know, Nima's struggles of convincing yourself you're open and ready for this and then not being able to continuously be honest being like I'm fine I'm totally fine I don't know what you're talking about like I definitely relate to that um and that yeah that was a big a big uh, sore spot if you will that I needed to make a movie out of to hopefully exercise out of myself <laughs> do you want to tell me about how it reflected itself in your life um you mean previously yeah um yeah just you know being with people and Wanting to be all in, you know, vulnerable and all these things. And then the minute it there's more truth to it of actually getting to know each other, actually being vulnerable and what that means, um, I found it very challenging. I would just kind of clam up and be like, maybe we're just friends or, you know, get drawn to people who are unavailable, you know, basic psychology. Um, I like to think, you know... Uh, any advice I have is like make a make art about your biggest insecurities because it, it does help. I'm still working on it, but it definitely helped a lot to kind of see it from a you know fourth perspective almost and just be like, whoa, I totally remember doing that and why that's not fair to other people and just like to take your time more instead of rushing into something. How did this movie come to be about two women's romance rather than a man and a woman as it had originally been written? It was casting and then the evolution of the writing and those happening simultaneously. We were having troubles with the outline in the way that we were still working on it, but we were kind of getting stuck up against a wall about imagining it happening with a guy um, from literally just showing the sex to the actual physical, um, like, can a guy actually come that many times? I feel like when I was watching the movie, which has every kind of sex scene in it mm -hmm. like to like emotionally and tonally um yeah. like happy sex sexy sex like first time sex 75th time sex yeah <laughs> um you know because that's the idea of this relationship is that they're trying to encompass a full relationship into this 24 hours totally i thought like if i was watching this much sex in a movie between a man and a woman 
I feel like it would feel very different. Like there's no way yeah. to look at that without the um, the baggage and the context of you know a hundred years of misogyny in film and America. Yeah, like more than a hundred <laughs> years in America, right? Right. And like it would it would just feel dramatically different. Leaving leaving aside the like biological, can totally. a dude have that many sex in that time? Yeah, but also the gender the gender roles is what we were also able to solve is like we had written this story about two people and we're really kind of gender blind to it but because you know that's how we had seen just like thought of it we're like right it's a story about a guy and a girl jack and jill you know like this is the story um but we really didn't want it to be about like men and women are different you know and like people getting projecting their gender specific roles onto people so when we cast laia you know that was another huge part of the story that got solved we were like it's even better. It clarifies how different these two people are without distracting people about um, these gender identities that we have. And like women are crazy and guys are distant, you know, and it's like all these things that we didn't had nothing to do with the with the story. And, you know, once we changed it to Laia and kind of understood exactly what the story was going to be, it was also important to me not to add the fact that um, you know, we were lesbians and not addressing that too much. And I was like, there's, it's a very important story, the coming out story or the challenges of the outside world when people are gay. But for me, I wanted to tell this very insular story where it's not like, so when did you realize that you were gay? It's like, no, we're just together. Um, and, and when they're in a social context, they're in a gay social context. A gay social context, exactly. Where no one has to explain to each other you know they are hegemonic in the uh you know in the gay bar that they're yeah. in uh you know everybody there is a lesbian and it's not a big deal mm-hmm. you know which is the whole idea yeah totally <laughs> it's not a big deal and that like you know i i read an article um that some a woman wrote about um duck butter that was saying like she was challenging the facts whether it was a queer movie or not because it's not politicized and obviously you know she's allowed to have her opinion but i was like it is important to me that eventually we have stories where that's not the whole crux of it. Um, there's not just one friend who's black and one friend who's gay. It's like, no, they're just, they're gay, they're black, they're Arab, whatever. And we don't have to reference it so much. And that's how it would become, I think, a little more, um, you know, normalized. And also younger kids seem to really connect to this film, young college kids. And, you know, because hopefully in the certain communities that, you know, the younger generation, it's not weird for them. They're like, gay people weren't allowed to get married? And you're like, yeah, man, it was crazy. Like, that's, you know, hopefully the progression of things moving forward. I want to ask you about your childhood. Sure. You grew up east of L.A., like in Palm, in the Palm Springs area. Yeah. Um, what is it like to live there in a place where the public perception of that place is defined by... Um, vacationers and retirees. You know, it's a very uh, strange place to grow up in. I wouldn't change it for anything because now I love going back. Um, But growing up, you know, high school years was kind of rough. I mean, it was just like really boring. There's nothing really for the youth. It's slowly starting to grow, but... It's like some uh, kind of desert there. Yeah, it's a big-ass desert. Um, And in the summers, it's brutally hot, you know, up to like 120 degrees. And it kind of turns into a ghost town over the summer. So it's this like hot, empty place where it's like a huge mall and it's like and like tumbleweeds. And you're like, I guess we'll just hide in the movie theater and watch five movies and skip around uh, just to be in the air conditioning. Um, yeah, it was a very odd place, especially because it was so close to L.A. And, and because I started acting when I was young, I would be, you know, me and my parents would commuting back and forth to LA a lot so I had this like comparison where I'm like LA the big city and then I come back to like the small town I was like oh this um but you know it's very small and quaint I went to a very small school knew everyone in my the whole class and the whole school um it's like there's no traffic you know it's very slow paced um and you're around a lot of old people which looking back on I appreciate and kind of value um I think it it kind of taught me this like weird inner pacing, if that makes sense. Like, um, you know, other people, very few that I've met who grew up there, there's something where like, oh, we know, you know, like desert rats, I call them or call us. But um, I think like 
there's a breed of special people that actually come from this place because it's very strange. It has a weird little history and um, and also a very strange dichotomy of like super wealthy old people and then like everyone else who works for them and then people who are barely getting by kind of like meth head world too. You know, it's like a very strange and they're all living together because it's not that big. And then you drive out and there's like the Salton Sea, you know, and and then there's Joshua Tree. Like there's all these like strange, beautiful, odd nature places also nearby. So the dinosaurs from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. The dinosaurs, yeah. Um, the outlet malls. I mean, yeah. There's a date lot of shakes. date shakes. Love the banana date shakes. My favorite. Um, yeah. So now I wouldn't trade it, you know, for the world. But it was an odd little place. It was kind of like. You know, specifics were different, but like a suburb where you're just like, can't wait to get out of this town. It was that kind of vibe. You made a documentary about your, a short documentary about your dad owning a strip club. I did, yeah. Did he own a strip club when you were little? All my life, yeah. They owned one before. My parents met at uh, the body shop on Sunset. My mom was a waitress and my dad was a barback. And they met were friends for years and then once they got you know together they said we we're going to open up our own but in palm springs because my mom's father to be um, clear the, the body shop a a strip club not the body shop where you buy satsuma lotions yes sorry yeah it's a uh, it's like a famous place in la yeah. la based but yeah uh, right on sunset boulevard bright yellow uh so they decided to open up their own place and you know we're working hard and saving money and my grandfather, my mother's father, was an actor uh, in the 50s and 60s. And he had a weekend home there that he ended up retiring in. So they were like, oh, Palm Springs. This is like this good kind of smaller town. It's cheaper, not that far away. So they decided to open up their their first business there. It was called The Pink Lady. And then um, my mom had me and my older brother. And then they moved like something like 30 years ago to Showgirls, opened up as a bigger club, like a little shopping center. And, yeah, so they've had it all all my life, yeah. Let's take a listen to a, a little clip from the documentary, which is called Showgirl Sexuality. This is you in the club sitting across from your dad. And actually, you have not revealed in the documentary to this point. Yeah, it's revealed a, kind of at the end, yeah. The reverse dramatic irony or whatever it's called uh, that uh, you're talking to your dad. You're, you're just talking to the manager of the strip club. Mm-hmm. What would you think if your daughter was a dancer? You know... As a father, you know, you don't want your daughter to be dancing. I'm not putting anybody down, but I mean, if, if, uh, I don't feel comfortable about it. Absolutely not. No. Yeah. yeah. You only have one daughter, right? Yep. And she's sitting in front of me. Right. Okay. It's your career. It's your life. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> 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 I can't even. I can't even begin to. I mean, the whole situation. Obviously, if you're not in that, if you haven't lived, grown up in that situation, it's it's hard, difficult to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. But you sitting there and and asking those questions, like I can't. I can't imagine asking those questions of my dad. My dad's a nice man. Yeah. Uh, but I'm terrified of him. Is my dad? <laughs> you know, I was terrified of my dad when I was younger. We butted heads a lot when I was like 16. Discovered pot and uh, was working. You know, so when I come home to the desert, as I said, there was like this like drip, uh, you know, like this kind of fall in energy because I'd be so active and working with like my close friends working on a set. And then I'd have to come back to Palm Springs and do regular school. And I was like, well, I'm not getting any high from this, you know. So um, I was craving independence, naturally, whatever. So I would get, you know, toasted. And my dad and I are very similar. And now we're very close. But at that time, it was very challenging because I was like, well, I'm working. I think I deserve to go out late and smoke pot with my friends. And he was like, I don't think so. He's like, <laughs> you're working hard, but you have to be a smart girl and stay home. And also you're a girl. You know, there was a line there as well of two brothers and they kind of had more freedom than I did. And I was like, this is bullshit. I work harder than they do. I should deserve freedom. And he was like, but it's not safe for you out there in the world. And I was like, bullshit. So it, it was very challenging for many years uh, in the teens. But then as I got older... And he saw that I was focused. We've become, you know, very, very close. Actually, the minute I turned 18, where I was legally independent, he completely pulled the reins back and was like, I support you. It's your life. Do what you want to. So uh, when you were a teenager, 
you were cast on Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while for Arrested Development to become anything like the phenomenon that it is today. Now, whatever it is, 15 or so years later. Yeah. Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh it must have been exciting just to be cast on a network television program. But at what point did you realize that you were in more than just a network television program? Um, you know, there's kind of two stages of it. Our first season, we won an Emmy for Best Comedy Show and Best Writing. And it was completely out of the blue. I mean, I remember me and Michael sitting there with the writers um, and – when they called our name, we were just like, what? And then we all had to run up together. It was very exhilarating, you know. And and because I was young and hadn't experienced before, it was, you know, I'd been on another TV show, but this was only my second one. And you get nominated for an Emmy. And you get nominated for all these awards. And I was like, I guess that's what happens on TV <laughs> shows. You just have to go to these awards. Um, little did I realize how big a, you know, system at all this. But... Anyway, so when we won, I was like, wow, we're part of something that everyone's going to watch now. You know, we had just come out with the first season. And, um, you know, I remember Michael and I got recognized once when the first season aired. And we were, like, blown away. They were like, you're on that show, Arrested Development, huh? And we were like, yeah, we are. And it was such a big deal. And then, yeah, we won the Emmy and it was huge. And we went back to work, I remember, the next day on the Fox lot. And they have, like, free advertising on the outside, you know, those three big boards. And they had, like, the Pamela Anderson show about her being a librarian with the aptly named title Stacked. Mm-hmm. And um, It's counterintuitive because you wouldn't expect her to be a librarian. No, so you it's wouldn't. Funny. Exactly. It's very funny. But her tits are huge. And um, so there's, like, that I and, like, two other. Frankly, <laughs> <but> continue. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Pam's, actually. Yeah. But um, anyway, so there's two other shows that you've never heard of, like, they haven't lasted, you know. And then you go inside and you have to have a pass to get past the security guard. And when you turn the corner, there's a small little banner that only people who worked at Fox saw that said, congratulations, Arrested Development, on winning like six Emmys. And I remember that moment and my mom kind of commented on it. She goes, why won't they give you guys the billboard? Because we never saw any advertising for the show. And she's like, that's such a bummer. She's like, it's like they just gave you like a little prom when you just like won the Super Bowl or whatever, you know. And so... I thought I was a part of something bigger, and then it got chalked down again because I was like, no one's watching the show. We did three seasons, pretty much unnoticed to a degree. Uh, awards and critics would like it, but I wasn't even aware of that stuff as much. or I didn't hold it up to a high tier. I wasn't like, this is important we got nominated. I was like, I guess i got to find a dress again. You know, it was like, it wasn't a big deal. Um, and also nobody knew who we were. That was the thing. There was no awareness or interaction with fans of the show at the time. When we come back from a quick break, I'll talk with Alia Shockett even more about Arrested Development, plus Mackenzie Crook of Detectorists, The Office, Game of Thrones, and more. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. How can a family keep its traumas from being passed down from generation to generation? The answer for one family may lie in the tiny Alaskan community where their ancestors have lived for centuries. I remember my uncle saying, here, take this twenty-two. Until you can shoot a ground squirrel through the eye, you can't hunt with us. A story about what we inherit on this week's Code Switch. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Showtime and the acclaimed series The Affair. This summer, the journey continues in this intimate relationship drama. A fresh start should mean a new beginning, but the past forces everyone to crash back together. Starring Dominic West, Ruth Wilson, Maura Tierney, and Joshua Jackson. Don't miss the new season of The Affair, premiering June 17th only on Showtime. To try a free month, go to Showtime.com and enter code BULLSEYE. Offer is for first-time subscribers only and expires July 15th. We've all made mistakes in book club, right? You drink a little too much, you don't actually read the book, and if you're under the bubble in Fairhaven, your individual will get subsumed by the collective. Hey, maybe I just let him go and whip us up some guac. We do not require guac. We require only nutrients and expansion. You will become book club. You will eat, pray, and love with us. Join book club. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. 
Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Alia Shawkat, plays Maybe Fionke on Arrested Development. She also stars on TBS's Search Party, and she's in a new film called Duck Butter. It's available to rent or buy now, and it hits Netflix on July 1st. Let's hear a clip from uh, Arrested Development, on which my guest, uh, Alia Shawkat, played uh, Maybe Fionke, who was uh, a somewhat scheming, somewhat precocious, slightly grumpy teenager mm-hmm. um, who had parents who you could either call hands-off or negligent, depending on <laughs> your perspective on things. And so at one point on the show, uh, back when it was still on Fox, um, she gets a job as a studio executive, and she is still a middle teenager at this point. Um, uh, and the family doesn't even realize that she's gotten this job as a studio executive. Um, and so this is her at home, and she's talking with her dad, uh, Tobias, who's, who's played by David Cross. I haven't seen you in a week. Oh, right. That means Mrs. Featherbottom isn't here, which means she didn't iron my blouse, which means I don't have anything to wear for my premiere. The premiere of Canada. He's going out with my gym teacher. Maybe was actually referring to the premiere of a film from the studio where she had conned her way into a job. Oh, hey, Jeff, did you ever get a chance to do that coverage on Voices in America, History and Perspective? Yeah, I looked that up. It's a ninth grade history textbook. Yeah, and if I don't get your report on it, I won't be able to pass on it. Because I have a feeling it's a piece of Unfortunately, the job was wreaking havoc with her language. Maybe we just need a new housekeeper. Oh my god, my voice is so high. There's a new season of Arrested Development just around the corner. Is it odd to like go back to your old high school, basically? Uh, yes. It was weirder the first time we came back after like the ten year break, the first time we did it for Netflix. Cause it was like I hadn't seen them since I was a proper teenager and had experienced a lot of things, you know, traveled and sex and drugs and i felt like that's i wanted to like show how mature i got but i still obviously wasn't mature because i was like i gotta show them that i'm like an adult now and that you know because when i was younger i was so insecure i had such a good time on the show like me and michael were best friends and we would do schooling and stuff but i always felt like i'm the least funny one in the group you know and i was always like writing in my journal like they hate me on the show you know it was like i was very like dramatic inside even though i was having fun it was like just being 15 and like moody was it odd to have a relationship with actors on the show who had seen you? I mean, you know, in an ideal situation, maybe they served as mentors. I don't I don't know. Yeah. But who essentially were, you know, no, there was nobody there was nobody besides Michael Sarah who was even young enough to be like your big brother, or big sister. It was like people who could be your parents. Yeah. And to go back to them as a peer? Yeah. No, like, it's very odd. It still is. I, I still feel myself, like, when I'm around them, acting like a kid, you know? Um, me and Michael have remained very close throughout the whole time, so that was never weird, and I'm so thankful that we got to share it together. But they were definitely mentors in a way that it wasn't like they sat us down or like, something you should learn about comedy is like, we were just hanging out with them a lot and doing scenes with them that we might not even have understood what the scene was. And then seeing the way they do it, we're like, oh, shit, that's funny. Um, it really taught and shaped our sense of humor and sensibility and the way we read a script. And, you know, it's it's priceless. Like, it's, it's unbelievable what we were able to learn so much at that age. It definitely is a family dynamic, uh, you know, to a degree, obviously. But we've known each other, this whole cast, for so long. Um, especially the way they knew Michael and I you know, we were little, so little, 14 or 15 when we started it, or even younger, like 13, 14. So there's a very, you know, parenting kind of thing of, uh, you know, I remember coming back this season and, and, you know, Jessica and Jeffrey being like, I am so proud of you. Have you seen the show? Have you seen Search Party? It's unbelievable. Did you read what the New York Times review said? Did you read it? Like to everybody. And I was like, all right, all right. Like, they're like, really like my grandparents. Um, so if your grandparents were on Flipper. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, they're very, you know, it's very supportive. We really do 
all know each other in the, you know and and again I don't really hang out with a lot of them outside of the shooting but we've seen each other at events and stuff besides Michael and and in David I've seen a lot more but um but there is this thing of just like it also propelled if you will um all of our careers even though you know people have had careers before that but it was such a big piece of all of our work and I think in a way we all like experienced how the world reacted to it and came back and we're like can you believe it that thing we made so long ago now people care and love it and we've all experienced such positive things because of it that's got us other jobs to meet people you know all these experiences and then when we got back together we were able to kind of look at each other and be like it's really cool we're in this like group together Alia Shaka, thanks so much for taking the time to come and be on Bullseye it was great to have you on the show yeah it was great to be here thank you Alia Shockett, everyone. Duck Butter is a fascinating movie recommended by me. You can buy or rent it from pretty much any online platform. Starting July 1st, you can stream it on Netflix, too. Check it out. Oh, and we didn't get to talk about it in the interview, but did you know that her first movie role was in the movie Three Kings? Uh, the late 90s David O. Russell Gulf War movie with Ice Cube and George Clooney? She plays an Iraqi refugee. Uh, but you didn't know that. Pretty good first movie, I think. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Mackenzie Crook. Mackenzie is a British actor. He broke through in 2001 when he starred on the original version of The Office. He played Gareth Keenan, who, if you haven't seen it, was the basis for the Dwight character on the American version of the show. Since then, he's appeared in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies as Rigetti. He had a part in Game of Thrones as well. But one of the most interesting things he's done is a show that he created and in which he stars. It's called Detectorists. It tells the story of two metal detectorists, guys who roam the English countryside with metal detectors, scanning for gold or old stuff in the ground. And it's a comedy. But if you're looking for, I don't know, a wacky take on weird hobbies, the kind you might get from a Christopher Guest movie or something... That's not what Detectorists is. It's modest and quiet and sweet. Take the main characters. There's Andy, who's played by Mackenzie, a low-key guy who's happy to spend hours on a farm just kind of pacing around with the detector in his hand and the headphones on his head. And his best friend Lance, played by Toby Jones. Lance is a little more outgoing, a little more self-involved sometimes, too. But his passion for metal detecting, and by extension, history and archaeology, is really earnest. And the friendship between the two guys is beautiful. Really, this is one of my favorite shows of the last few years. Its third and final season is available to stream right now on Acorn TV. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the show. This is a scene from its second season. It's Andy and Lance talking about what they'd do if they ever found gold. You ever thought about what kind of dance you'd do if you found gold? Oh, no. Bad luck to practice beforehand. Has to be spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah, I've no idea what will come out on the day. Well, I imagine it'll be uh, exuberant. Not too exuberant, though. Remember what happened to Derek Hoof? Oh, yeah. Dislocated the hip. It wasn't even gold in the end, was it? Milk bottle top. Embarrassing. Mackenzie Crook, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. It's good to be here. So... When you were out pitching this show, had you ever actually used a metal detector? At that point, I don't think I had. No, I think I'd always been fascinated. As a kid, there was this, this thing, yeah, these these machines that you could apparently find treasure with. And I'm sure I asked for one for birthdays and Christmas. But no, up until at that point, I hadn't. I hadn't got myself a metal detector. I mean, it is a very odd confluence of that child's idea of finding treasure and i have a six-year-old and a four-year-old and both of them you know are obsessed with the idea of finding treasure yeah and just the most middle-aged man thing in the world which is finding a hobby that is essentially wandering around on a on a hillock uh, (laughs) (laughs) with headphones on so no one can talk to you yeah yeah and it was that that struck me about this hobby when I, f- I first I saw this show called Time Team on British TV a few years ago, and it, and it featured a couple of these guys. 
And it just struck me as such a interesting but but unusual and lonely hobby. That I mean, our series Detectress, we said it in the summer just because it looked beautiful and it seemed a shame to waste the English countryside. But in fact, the real um, hobby of metal detecting is usually carried out in the winter months when there's no when there's no crops in the fields, and so it's in bleak, you know, bitter cold winds and snow that they go out there in freezing conditions. So it's even bleaker and lonelier than it would appear on our show. What was it about that that caught your, I guess, your mind? I mean, I've always had hobbies. I've always been interested in hobbies, and my dad always had hobbies. Um, for me, it was fishing or bird watching, which are very similar, you know, isolated, lonely hobbies where you can just go out there and it doesn't actually matter if you catch a fish or spot the bird, and it doesn't actually matter if you find the gold or treasure, but it's the being there and 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 being out there meditating, but with this with this prospect of possibly getting lucky that appeals i guess what made you think that that was a television show um well it turned out that i was i was percolating the idea for a lot longer than i initially thought because i found an old notebook from 1999 that had the idea sort of mapped out over three pages that i'd written down and then sort of put aside and forgotten about for a decade and a half but yeah something obviously appealed to me about two guys and some of the first things I wrote were were just the dialogue between Lance and Andy talking about what they watched on TV the night before and and some of those bits of dialogue you know made it from the notebook through to the finished uh, TV show un, un you know unchanged it was just um a sort of a stream of consciousness of, of these guys just talking when they're away from their partners, where no one else can hear them, what sort of things they talk about. I just knew that I wanted to see see some real blokes with a real bloke's relationship on TV. I didn't know if I'd seen that before. What do you mean when you say that? Um, the, the realistic way that, that guys talk to each other. I mean, when I'm with my best friends, we don't talk about our sexual conquests. And so often I see that on TV. Guys, like, guys talking about how, you know, they're their sex lives and I would never dream of talking about my sex life with my with my friends I'd be much rather talk about you know watching Jeopardy or Mastermind the night before those are the things that we talk about uh that's probably not very well put but <laughs> I'm gonna play another little clip from Detectorists and this is a scene where my guest Mackenzie Crook who, who plays Andy on the show and his best friend Lance who's played by Toby Jones are just out in the countryside, they are sitting under a tree. Maybe they're about to have a, a bit of tea from a thermos or something. I don't remember exactly. And uh, Lance just asked Andy, if you could meet anyone dead or alive at a dinner party, who would it be? I know who I wouldn't invite. Who? Stephen Fry or Jesus. Yeah? Yeah. They get invited to these imaginary dinner parties all the time. Doubt they'd be very good company. Probably a bit bored and bolshy. I'm the Dalai Lama. Bit moody. I don't know, maybe Kurt Cobain? Oh, yeah, he'd be a good laugh. He was known for his sparkling dinner party conversation. Will there be heroin at this dinner party? What are your hobbies that are, that are the closest parallels to your character's obsession with uh, metal detecting? Well, I mean, I am now a detectorist. I, you know, through researching this show, I obviously got myself a metal detector and I realised that it's not just a case of luck. You don't just, you know, wander out there and hopefully walk over some treasure. There is a skill to it and I've actually learned that skill and I've got better and better at metal detecting. So I do that now, although not, you know, it takes up a whole day and I don't have many whole days to go out away from my family and trudge up and down a field. You know, I can't justify that Mackenzie um, what exactly let's um, let's talk about other hobbies in a second what exactly are the skills of metal detecting for folks who have never done it before well a metal detector these days is a complicated piece of technology and they you know they you have to learn how to use them they have uh, you know different settings and they have um you know there's infinite different ways you can use a metal detector and you learn to use use the machine you learn to look at the landscape and you're able to see where you know people would have gathered the workers in the field and it's it's this whole immersive experience it's quite incredible i i have really gotten into it and with this as i say this this idea that you could find something even if it's not valuable but it's it's old and it's connected to a very specific person in the past and that connection with the past is quite magical when you do find something 
I think that you've depicted that sometimes in the show, that ability to look at landscape and see it as it once was, like to see landscape yes. as a connection, particularly because of, you know, the nature of metal detecting, particularly as a connection to the people who were there before. Yeah. And that's that's a very magical thing. Yeah, and that that came up very early in in these notebooks that I found this initial idea. I'd also jotted down the idea that I wanted to see below the ground and see the things that they'd just missed or were about to find, and uh, and yeah, and even to see the ghosts of the past, the the, the people that dropped these items. Um, and yeah, when you're out there in in the countryside, metal detecting, looking at the ground, concentrating, you do feel this this connection. You know. It's, the landscape has remained unchanged for hundreds of years. It's a really meditative experience. I I love uh, going to the flea market, and I my mother is an antique dealer, and yeah, there's something that's hard to explain to somebody who doesn't understand it about an old thing, yeah. which. That, that's exactly it. The flea market thing is exactly it. That's, I know exactly what you mean. Going around looking and thinking, you know, you're about to find it. You're about to spot the thing that you're looking for, yeah. And in addition to that, I mean, the, there is the excitement of, you know, a world of possibility and you find exactly what it was you hoped. There's that kind of jackpot feeling, which is part of detecting as well. Mm-hmm. But there's also this feeling that when you... When you're holding a, a an enameled cooking pot and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's a particularly lovely enameled cooking pot and it, and it has aesthetic value. But, like, there is also a certain appeal to the fact that it has had its own life before it was in your hand. That e- mm-hmm. even if a, a one that was fresh from the factory doesn't have any chips in the enamel, I still might find myself picking the chipped one. Simply because, even course, though I yeah. don't know what its story is, I, I can imagine it. Absolutely, and there's there's a lot of talk about buttons in Detectorist because buttons in in the UK you find so many of them in the fields, and they you know they came from the workers. But I love finding buttons because if you find a coin, it would have passed through so many different hands and had a long history. A button probably only belonged to one person in its whole button career, and it, you know <laughs> that's the person that lost it in the field. So you find that button. You know, there's your connection directly to to a particular person in the past, and so yeah, that that's the chipped enamel cook, cooking pot, definitely. I, I want to play another clip from Detectorists, and my guest Mackenzie Crook is the creator of the show and also its star. And uh, this is Andy and his best friend. That's Mackenzie's character and his best friend Lance, who's played by Toby Jones. And Lance just found something and is uh, digging it up out of the ground and. Um, he's kind of taking a moment. We're walking on archaeology. There's nowhere we could tread that hasn't been trodden a thousand times before by uh, the Celts, the Druids, the Romans. What you got? Scaffold clamp. Saxons, the Vikings. You know, when I look at this landscape, I can read it. That's the likely site of a settlement. That's where the workers gather for their lunch. That's where someone left some scaffolding. (laughs) Yeah. My interview with Mackenzie Crook continues after a break. When we come back, he'll tell me about the role the English countryside plays in the show and why it was so important for him to get B-roll of bugs and toads. So important, in fact, that he dispatched people to collect them. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, everybody. Hal Lublin and Mark Gagliardi from We Got This here to talk about our upcoming live shows. Why don't you tell everybody the details about our show in Philadelphia? Sure. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down to Philadelphia Improv Theater, okay? You're going to do it on Saturday, June 23rd, okay? There are two shows. One is 5 o'clock show. There's an 8 o'clock show. At 8 o'clock show, you can get a VIP ticket and hang out with us at 7 p.m. for like a whole hour. We'll sign something for you. You can hang out. You can talk to us. And then come see a show. Both shows are going to be completely different now. Both shows? Both shows are going to be different. Here's I sounded the- like a British actor trying to do a Philadelphia accent. Yeah. You, you can look up Philadelphia Podcast Festival. You can look that up and get tickets there. Or you can go to Philadelphia Improv Theater to the Fit Theater, P-H-I-T, uh, and you can get tickets there. Or you can just go direct 
at bit.ly forward slash we got Philly 2018. That's W E G O T P H I L L Y 2018. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Mackenzie Crooks starred as Gareth on the original UK version of The Office. He also created and stars in Detectorists. You can stream the show in its entirety on Acorn TV. What kind of parts were you called in to audition for before you got the office? Um, well, not very many, really. It was I'd, I'd really just done a few little little parts, and then I'd, I'd done a stint presenting as myself on this uh, topical thrice uh, weekly show called the Eleven O'clock Show, and. I, I've, yeah, I didn't like presenting as myself. I, I don't know quite how I got into that situation. But then it wasn't long after that that... I mean, I was doing stand-up comedy, always with characters, and the parts I was getting were, yeah, the the, the strange, quirky roles. Um, and then Gareth came along, who's like the king of the strange, quirky roles. Do you think that was because of the way that you look or something about your manner? I'm, I'm, yes, uh, I'm sure it's... A, a bit of both. I, I know, again, it's, I mean, strangely, you know, I was talking about how Lance was a different character when I first wrote him, and then when I cast Toby, he's, his character changed. Um, and I think with Ricky and Stephen, the character of Gareth, he was a much more macho figure. He was he was a bigger guy. He was in the army and he was physical. And then I came in and read for it, completely the opposite physical type than they had in their mind. And and they thought, ah, oh, yes, okay, maybe this is a different direction to go. I think one of the things that I like about watching Detectorists is I've been a fan of yours for since the UK version of The Office. And I think, like, you had such a horrible haircut on that show. Yeah. And then, you know, like, things things that I've seen you in since, you know, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or Game of Thrones, <laughs> there, are these, there are these kind of parts that you've gotten where, like, the whole point is for you to be like as crazy looking as possible. Yeah. And and I thought it was really nice. I, I was like watching you in Detectorist and thinking like, wow, what a what a like beautiful guy he is. You know what I mean? I was like <laughs> when he, like, when he's not wearing a fake wooden eyeball or whatever it was in the Pirates movies. It's it's really lovely to see you looking like a, a person. I mean, because even on The Office, which is. As dry yeah. a television show as possible, you had an insane haircut that made yeah. you look like the doofus to end all doofuses. And I'm like, what? It's exciting to see him as a guy. <laughs> it's, it's, I've never thought of that, but um, I mean, I, I don't know how, whether you would know, but Gareth, my, my character in the office, spoke with a West Country accent, which is not my accent. But people, when they meet me, they can hear a West Country accent even when there isn't one there, just because they, they know me as Gareth. And, I, yeah, you pointing out that that hairstyle is maybe what makes people think that I'm weird-looking because that's, that's <laughs> people go on about how weird I am, how weird-looking I am all the time. I'm like, am I? Am I really that weird? And maybe it's just this projection of all my old parts. <laughs> but, again, with, with the character of Andy, it was a deliberate attempt to, to write a normal everyman character for me to play rather than the freak or the, 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 the goofy guy. Did someone, when production of The Office started, did someone on set give you that crazy haircut? And it's like, a, I mean, you can describe what your hair was like at the time. It's a, it's like an odd, it's sort of like a bowl haircut. Yeah, it's, it's um, no, I was, I was instructed to go and get my haircut. And I went into the, to this 
hairdresser and, and I said to the guy that I needed a bad haircut. I wanted a, a, a bad office worker's haircut. Did you go into like a fancy haircut place or like a... Yeah, I did. Yeah, in London, Soho. And this guy that I asked to do this was a little bit put out because, you know, he'd, he'd been to college to learn how to do good haircuts, not bad <laughs> ones. So, you know, I remember him just sort of, I thought it would be quite a charming thing, you know, weird eccentric thing for somebody to ask for. But no, he was a bit pissed off about that. But yeah, he delivered. He, he gave me this strange thing which uh, has gone down in haircut history. Let's hear a scene from The Office with my guest Mackenzie Crook, who was Gareth, who uh, American viewers of The American Office might remember the corollary character on the uh, American version of the show, which was Dwight Schrute. Those characters had a lot in common, um, what with one being based on the other one and everything, uh, but also a fair number of differences. So in this scene, Gareth is, is talking to Dawn, who was the female romantic lead on the show, and asking her for some dating advice. I've got two women on the go at the same time. Okay. All right, got off with them up. Chasers, they both want me. Uh, sorry, what's the question? Should you be cheating on them both? No, I don't, I don't care about that. Basically, one of them is an absolute cracker. All right, real fox. Not much upstairs in the brains department. And I need intellectual stimulation as well as downstairs. Right, so, so, I mean, sometimes I have to tell her not to talk during it. Stupidity puts me off my stroke. On you go. The other one is, you know, she's lovely, clever, A-levels, you know, right laugh, bit of a bloater. OK, it's nice that you're even thinking of choosing brains over beauty. Well, no, I'm not. I'm, can I ask Fatty to lose weight? Hmm? I'm not even sure that's wow. a proper solution, because, you know, I don't know. She's got a pretty face, difficult to tell. I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't just ask her straight out like that, sure. lose the weight, you know, I'd send her an email or something. It's such a, <laughs> like, it's, wow. I think it because it's been 15 years since the show was on television. Like, the thing that makes the show work is that it has a kind of emotional sweetness at the heart of it. Yeah. And that is true of, of all the characters, including Gareth. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, I don't think Gareth could be as, as – have a scene as awful as that. <laughs> if you didn't see a little bit of the sweetness inside of him. Yeah, I mean, he's – yeah, he's not coming from a vindictive place. Uh, he's, you know, he's coming from a – yeah, quite a sweet place. But it's – oh, it's excruciating to listen to that. It's – it's yeah, it's weird. I haven't heard that for a long time. I, I was listening to you being interviewed on Richard Herring's podcast, which is – a uh, very popular UK-based comedy interview show. And yeah, one of the things that Richard Herring said about The Office that I thought was actually, you know, quite insightful was that there, you know, you'd only have to turn, you'd only have to turn the lens a couple of degrees for Gareth to be a hero on the show and Tim and Don, the romantic leads, to be the antagonists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Gareth is such a dope, uh, and he's, like, you understand why they pick on him all day. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's something kind of lovely about him. And I wonder, as as the guy whose job it was to play him, what were the things that you really liked about Gareth? Yeah, I mean, he is, he's naive and he's a child, but I don't... He comes across as a bit of a monster, but when you look at it, it's just, he's... he's um. He's just a child, and and I like that. I liked that he wanted to be included. He wanted to, like David Brent, but perhaps to a lesser extent. But yeah, so when Dawn and Tim are winding him up, he thinks they're they're all having a laugh, all three of them. You know, so Gareth comes across as as really sweet, and those and Dawn and Tim come across as bullies. You know, or you know that's how it is really. The setup. No, yeah, he's a complex character, uh, Gareth, and he's the. His greatest crime is that he's just a little bit of of uh, of an idiot. That's it. <laughs> Why do you think when you were doing stand-up comedy, you always did characters and never spoke in the first person as yourself? Uh, I mean, for the same reason that, I mean, everyone who I mentioned I used to do stand-up to say, oh my God, that, that's terrifying. That must be the worst, the, you know, the most terrifying job in the world. 
and to me, yeah, the standing up as myself was telling jokes is I can I can get that that that's terrifying. But hide behind a character, I'm just acting, and and I feel comfortable acting. Yeah, um, if people didn't like it, I could say, oh, it was a character they didn't like. I'm all right. Was that part of the appeal of acting for you more broadly that you get to perform, but you don't have to put yourself on trial? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm quite a shy person in real life. I'm not overly confident. So that you know, it's a cliche. You hear actors saying this all the time: how shy they are in real life. Get on stage and they become someone else, and it's a release. But it's true. You know, I can I can act like a confident person in front of the camera on the stage, but but in real life, I'm a little bit more you know hemmed in by my social awkwardness. You mentioned the English countryside. Oh, God, I'm about to say, I'm literally about to say that thing where, like, you know, the city at Seton is as much a character as any of the characters in the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, New York is really a character in all of Woody Allen's movies. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, this show is a show that, um, for me, is like visiting another world as somebody who hasn't spent a lot of time in the English countryside. Right. What is it that's special about the country in England to you that you thought about as you were making the show? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I've I've said about the, the countryside being one of the characters in the show as well. It does sort of lend itself, this show, to cliches, but it's kind of true. And I guess it's just it's the countryside that I grew up in. It's not spectacular. There's something unspectacular but so achingly beautiful about it you know it's not that in the states there you've got some just mind-blowing scenery mind-blowing landscapes ours is not not that dramatic and the wildlife that we get there's nothing that's going to endanger your life you know the best we can do is a badger but there's something (laughs) beautiful and diverse and natural about it yeah i can't quite put my finger on it but also there's this depth of history below our feet as well as as i alluded to in that clip you played earlier the two thousand years of history under your feet when you're walking around london i find incredible it's also a very beautiful show was that a choice that you made at some point, like, I'm going to make a sitcom, but it's going to be beautiful to look at? Yes. I can't remember when that came. I think it came... I was, I was saying about that that metal detecting usually happens in the autumn and winter. But when we came to shoot a pilot, this pilot episode, we shot it on the hottest day of the summer, and I just realised that it would be a waste if we didn't shoot it in the glorious English summer. And so, yeah, and, and I, I was very specific that I wanted a portion of each filming day to just to go out and, and find these little inserts of nature and, and you know, beautiful little random things that we could find. And, and I said to the crew on the first day, if anyone finds an interesting bug or a toad or a butterfly, whatever, bring it to me and we'll try and get these shots. So, yeah, I wanted those sprinkled throughout. <laughs> I like the idea that there was just a production memo that went out that said, bring me toads. Seriously, yeah, and people, I'd, quite often I'd see someone approaching with a paper cup with their hand over the top of it and I'd peer in to see what, what treasures they'd fought me. Well, Mackenzie, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to come beyond Bullseye. I love your work so much and uh, it was really nice to get to talk to you. Thanks, Jesse. Really good to talk to you too. Mackenzie Crook, creator and star of Detectorists. It's one of my favorite shows. I think you'll love it, too. You can stream seasons one and two on Netflix now. Season three just dropped on Acorn TV. Give it a look. You'll be glad you did. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. We call it the outshot. Running backs don't play that long. It's a brutal job. 20 or 30 times every Sunday, your number gets called. And 20 or 30 times, you run straight at 11 guys who have spent a week thinking about new, brutal ways to hit you, to hurt you. 11 guys, 3,000 pounds of muscle, and for some stupid reason, you run straight at all of it. Every game, hit after hit after hit. And so you get maybe a few years, and then you limp home. Hopefully you got one good contract out of it. A house in the suburbs, an ottoman to rest your messed up legs. That's usually how it goes if you're a running back. 
unless you're Barry Sanders. First hit of the football and a huge hole for Sanders. Couple of men to beat and still on his feet, cuts it back to the inside and he's all the way. Hand off to Sanders. And he works the Cleveland defense. Look at these moves. First turnover of the ball game. Sanders. Unbelievable. What can you say? Back in 1989, when he was coming out of college, the Detroit Lions almost didn't draft Barry Sanders. The man had a Heisman Trophy, but he was only five foot eight. What would happen the first time he got hit for real? The first time some linebacker a foot taller than him squared up and really whomped him? That was the worry. Of course, if anybody in Detroit was waiting for that hit back in 1989, they're still waiting. Because nobody ever squared up Barry Sanders. Sanders still on his feet, and Sanders is gone. Six Cowboys missed him. When you watch Sanders run, and that's what I've been spending my day doing, uh, looking at YouTube clips, it honestly doesn't seem fair. When he cuts left and then back right, the parts of his body make you think of one of those wireframe models from computer animation with the yellow dots at the joints and and the white lines, like what they build a football video game out of. But it's crazier than a football video game. It's like they're not playing it straight. It's no fairsies. It's like it, it looks like some kind of demonstration of a football video game where the physics are broken, where some setting got messed up and the running back's feet are electric and he can't get knocked down no matter what. He just squibs around and bends without breaking and slides left and right and deforms just enough and pops back up. It looks impossible. But with Barry Sanders, it was real. Barry again. Slips a tackle. Has 10, 15, Or maybe it looks like one of those wind sock men outside of a car dealership. The flappy ones. If one of those guys could run. I mean, could you imagine trying to tackle that? And the Lions lead for the first time, 13 to 10. Like trying to catch a cricket with your bare hands. Barry Sanders, touchdown. Guys do get their hands on Sanders. But one of his feet slides left and one forefoot plants and his middle goes one way and his top goes another way and he just he just slips away. He hits a big pile of guys and then he dances in place and he lets the defense fall all over themselves and then he takes half a step back and explodes forward. He gets into the open field and he starts slipping through the hands of tacklers with a toe pointed out behind him. Almost lovely, like he was Alvin Ailey. It's not so much speed and power as it is virtuosity. Sliding, bending, curving, pointing virtuosity. A man born with a gyroscope inside. From the 15-yard line. Give it to Sanders. Oh, what a move! Oh, my! And it took until the final play of the third quarter, but the curtain has finally raised on the Barry Sanders show, and suddenly he has 95 yards rushing, and more important, the Lions have the lead. Sanders played for bad teams, so many bad teams. He pulled the Lions into the playoffs almost by himself five times. They only won one game. So when he was 30 years old, he wrote a letter to his hometown newspaper. He was done. Ten years in the league, just as good when he left as when he came in. And it was sad to see him go. But he wasn't beaten. He didn't limp away. His stride was smooth and healthy. A little running back who never let them hit him. As he hands it off to Sanders on his That's my outshot.
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where, wow, wow, was there some drama this week. There was a swimmer in the lake, apparently... I am told he was wanted for assault. So at one point there was like six or eight police cars plus like four fire and other emergency response vehicles. And the police brought a special boat and attached an outboard motor to it and went out into the lake. And anyway, long story longer, the swimmer was apprehended. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music, the music that you are hearing right now and in between segments and so on and so forth, was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Our theme song was recorded by The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries Records provided it to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we have over 15 years of interviews on our website at MaximumFun.org and many years available with your favorite podcatcher. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews, clips, and highlights there, too. And on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 